after last episode went kind of long and then I was moving stuff around. I was like, Oh boy, I, I put like 20 stories in here, but just smash them all together. <laughs> yeah. I think it's actually 14 stories. <laughs> we are, uh, we are going to go through this at a blitz pace. We are going to uh, professional sports this game. That's right. Uh, that's also supposed to be an indicator of how much I know about professional sports. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do 14 things at once, right? Sure. Why not? But part of it is just I figured like most everything else we talk about in this episode is going to end up getting drowned out by talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm. We're going to. I mean, like. I'm expecting it's like one and then the next and then the next and then the next literally that fast, not figuratively, literally that fast. I I will try not to put (laughs) 17 minutes of color on every episode trying to unify 12 different random thoughts about each thing. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I'm sure we'll do just fine. All right. I got a little snack in so that I wouldn't uh, end up hungry by the end of the episode. Actually, I probably still will be hungry by the end of the episode, but it's okay. That'll be the end of the episode. Yeah, (laughs) that's me too. (laughs) I had to wait in the car for uh, one of my wife's appointments today, and uh, I'm no fool. I brought with me a cheese stick and an Arizona tea, (laughs) and uh, I got to tell you, That'll tide you over. It won't do more than that, but you don't want it to because it'll spoil your dinner if it does. So cheese yeah, sticks just are right. a very high quality snack. Like high protein, relatively low calorie, good, uh, a good, a uh, good slow burn of a, oh yeah of a snack. And the ones that are uh, individually packaged, mm-hmm. I know it's so much plastic, but the ones that are individually packaged inside the larger box have a shelf life as long as they stay refrigerated for like sometimes over a year. So you just go to Costco, get yourself mm-hmm. like a 100 pack of cheese sticks, which is what I did, and then just eat cheese sticks out of the fridge for a year. Nice. It's genius. <laughs> Yeah, we were getting um, some snack food. We got some like uh, popcorn shrimp at the Aldi. And I all of a sudden, I was just like, we've gotten mozzarella sticks at Costco in a giant fucking bag. We need to find the fucking popcorn shrimp, like, 30-pound bag. Yeah, <laughs> that's the move. Those are the things you get. If you have the freezer space, you can go frozen. I don't really have the freezer space, so I get, you know, crucial refrigerated things like cheese sticks. And then mostly just like dry goods. Like that's where you buy your your rice and your oil and all of your, you know, staple staple shelf stable goods. Yeah. We also have a garage which during the winter doubles as a refrigerator. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. It's Michigan. <laughs> the whole outdoors is your refrigerator. Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Anyway, uh <laughs> yeah, should I intro the show now? No, don't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I mean, but yeah, actually. Okay. Do okay. It. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Damn, what a vicious fake out. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Stoppage. This is the 99th episode of the show, so you're Woo-hoo, not going to get. We did it, folks. Ex- we did well, it. Not quite. Is we it 100? Uh, 
Wouldn't that be? Because I don't want to do the long intro on this. There's so much stuff to get to. So many things have been happening, and uh, we tend to go a little bit long talking about individual things in our episodes. So I'm just going to breeze through the intro on this one. Uh, We are entirely listener-supported, so thank you so much for whatever you're giving us on Patreon. It really does go a long way. Get in the Discord if you're not already. Leave us a five-star review somewhere. Just carve it into a park bench. We don't care. Uh, And... (laughs) There's just a ton of things to get to. We talked about the WTTW station in Chicago, their local PBS affiliate, uh, and the workers have actually seen their healthcare be surprise revoked by the station, uh, including one of the workers who is battling cancer. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's that's our our first little bit. It's like fucked up. We see this far too often when uh, you know workers are out on strike. The company's like, oh, we got to put pressure on. And uh, the way that they do that is by uh, putting people's health at risk. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously, this sort of story really shows one of the main reasons why businesses are so against something like Medicare for All, because having this in their back pocket as a weapon that they can use against workers if they dare to strike is incredibly powerful. Like, again, with this case, we see with this, you know, these workers that are striking, at least one of whom is battling cancer, in a system where you have fucking private health care, like cutting off someone's health care in the middle of a cancer battle could be a death sentence. So yeah. like this is, I mean, it's incredibly fucked up. I know there is a bill that's been proposed by one of the more progressive members of the, the Dems to, to ban like this practice to make it illegal for companies to cut off health care during strikes. Unsurprisingly, that bill has gone nowhere in Congress. Yeah. And I don't expect it to without like, actual direct action to back it up but we just wanted to mention this you know because we talked about the strike last week and this is a really fucked up move but we're just trying to hit a couple of like real quick headlines here before we get into the main meat of the show Mm -hmm. so the next thing that we just wanted to mention real real fast is that we've talked about these folks on the show but it's been a while since we mentioned them and since they just hit a year on strike wanted to throw a shout out in here to the warrior mech coal miners who have been fighting for their jobs for you know, fair wages for literally a fucking year. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And so, very, very impressive. Yeah. Just wanted to, you know, shout out to them. Incredibly impressive for them to stand strong for a year on strike. Uh, But you know, it, it is also a bit of a testament to how fucked like the labor situation is when these folks can be forced to have to stay on strike for a year. So we just want to make sure folks don't forget that these 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 you know hardworking coal miners are still on strike and deserve all of our support as they continue to you know fight for the compensation that they deserve. Yeah, and uh, the next one we wanted to hit real quick was uh, the BNSF rail workers, which we mentioned before having like huge huge hurdles to even being able to strike. Um, and and like things like like cool down periods where they have mm-hmm. to like think about it or something i don't know but it's like (laughs) literally state mandated uh apparently because of all of that they have been quitting in droves uh from leaked data that has been released from the company itself mostly in response to the insane attendance policy yeah and i mean like also with the the things that prevent them from striking this is the one with the incredibly draconian like points based system attendance policy that was like made it incredibly easy to to basically incur the most severe penalty right away yeah it's basically they're given one day off a month and if you take more than that like if you get sick with covid and use sick days like not even un like 
not even just like unexcused absences, using your paid time off, you get enough points where you can get fired. And yeah, there there's been leaked data from the company that shows that the like quit rate in the company has spiked to well over double what was already a pretty high rate during the pandemic. So, I mean, this is where people have been backed into a corner where like the law makes it incredibly like, you know, it essentially makes it illegal for these workers to strike the, and, and this policy makes it unbearable to work there. So, well, and this is also one of those industries, you know, where it's sufficiently specialized to the point where if you do cycle through a lot of employees really fast, pretty soon you have inexperienced people mm-hmm. handling what is often antique infrastructure, and there will be health and safety hazards and accidents, I'm sad Absolutely. to say. Yeah, yeah. well, and, in a, you know, similar transit uh, news, I think we actually mentioned this in one of our overtime episodes, Become a Patron, uh, where the... Uh, <laughs> Teamsters under the oh yeah because I said the Hoffa regime and John, right. John mentioned that yeah yeah uh, they had supported a uh, class collaborationist bill basically saying uh, like solidifying into law gig workers as uh, as like independent contractors and not as employees on which they really are uh, the Teamsters under the new Teamsters for a Democratic Union slate have you know rescinded that support and have uh, urged the Washington government to not not pass it but uh it was a little bit uh, too late and uh the governor uh yeah the governor of the state uh had uh, basically just signed it into law on March 31st so unfortunately we have uh you know state policy of uh, creating a second-class worker status for gig workers. Yeah, and that's that's such a huge precedent. It's really no wonder that the Hoffa (laughs) regime, clique, you know, whatever, uh, (laughs) ruling group, uh, uh, oligarchs or whatever, (laughs) it doesn't matter, that that Hoffa's group, like, locked the incoming reform slate out of the office because, like, it was it was really important to them to set this kind of anti-worker precedent and to make sure that it was set up so that when uh, what's his name Sean O'Brien yeah uh, yeah to make sure that when Sean O'Brien and uh, his new group of leadership came in that they wouldn't be able to stop this bill which is really just like incredibly underhanded and despicable and terribly American I have to say yeah glad that he's gone uh, yeah nev- never again Hoffa yeah so I mean hopefully. Now that at least the leadership in here was opposed to this, they will, you know, redouble their efforts if this sort of thing comes up in other states to point out to legislatures like why this is a bad bill and to openly oppose it to try and keep this sort of thing from spreading beyond Washington state. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm impressed with our blistering pace so far. We could go into actual radio. Um, we're <laughs> going to slow it down just a touch uh, to do a follow-up on the Sacramento teacher strike uh, that is ending with just a tentative agreement. So uh, last Sunday, the Sacramento's Teacher Association and SEIU, SEIU Local 1021 announced that they'd be re- that they'd reached a tentative agreement. Uh, to end their two-week-long strike. It still has to be ratified, but uh, classes did start again on Monday, the 4th yeah. of April. So, uh, yeah. But we'll we'll do a little examining of, of what the actual contract m- quite possibly is going to look like. Yeah, so, you know, we talked about this strike last week, like where basically the Minneapolis teacher strike finished and the Sacramento teacher strike started. And... 
there's actually was a lot of similarities there. They, they like in both cases, you had long-standing problems. You had like districts that had money but refused to spend it. And then in the actual like action of the strike, you saw really solid community support for the striking teachers. And one of the the interesting I didn't put it in the notes here, but one of the interesting like specific parallels was you actually had district occupations in both of these strikes where students in the in one case in, in Minneapolis it was students that occupied the school district headquarters mm-hmm. to to demand you know that they actually meet with the teachers and it was actually parents in Sacramento who did the same thing who who staged an, an occupation to demand that the Sacramento Unified School District actually bargain in good faith with the teachers and so in both cases, very good to see the strong community showing. And so uh, one thing that, you know, I got to throw out there, the the one critique we got to have right off the bat is the somewhat un- undemocratic nature of signing a tentative agreement and just ending the strike and right. announcing we're going back to classes before there's been a ratification vote. Like, Yeah, because that puts a lot of pressure on the teachers to just accept the agreement because they don't yeah. have as much leverage anymore while not being on strike. Yeah. yeah, and this no, is the exactly. kind of thing that uh, that workers like teachers always get pressured into. Uh, you see this with healthcare workers pretty often as well, because there's always like this social uh, kind of like, well, we do want to get them back to work as soon as possible. So once mm-hmm. there's an agreement on the table, can't you go back to work? And it's like I, I understand uh, that that resisting that is not always necessarily on the table in terms of things like community support, but like it is really important to maintain your leverage. And if you think it's possible to, to stay out on strike until you have actually uh, voted on and, and, and ratified the contract. Well, and it's possible for, you know, SEIU uh, locals to, to, you know, be radical and do actual good, good actions. But honestly, this is a little bit of a trend from the SEIU, uh, especially since they are basically not a rank and file union and are still oper- operating at least partially under the business unionism model. Right. Yeah. So to get into what the ten- like the details of the tentative agreement, what this what will almost certainly be the new contract, I don't. Like from from what I've read, it's 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 expected that this it, because like regardless of what people think of it, it, it looks like this is going to be ratified. Likely just because you know the strike has kind of had the leverage, like as you, as you said, pulled away from it mm-hmm. by classes resuming on Monday. But to dig into the the details of the tentative agreement, uh, this is going to include like you know starting with wages, teachers are going to actually receive retroactive. 3% raises because as we mentioned when we talked about this strike last week the teachers contract didn't expire in 2022 it didn't expire in 2021 it expired in 2020 and the SEIU contract expired in 2019 so like these workers have been you know working to an old contract without any raise whatsoever for years so they did actually get some retroactive raises not huge ones but you know uh, not nothing uh, so the teachers specifically are getting 3% raises in the form of bonuses. So it's basically like if you had had a 3% raise in each of the last two years, we will give you a bonus equivalent to what that raise would have resulted in. And then going forward for this contract, the teachers will receive a 4% raise, which was listed as a cost of living adjustment. Um, (laughs) And I don't really understand why, because Mm -hmm. I'm like, COLA to me has to, 
if it's really going to be that, that has to be pegged to inflation and inflation is more than 4%. So I I don't really know that that's a right way to or, characterize or it's this. Also sometimes characterized as something on top of the actual raise because a right. raise is different from a cost of living adjustment because you have your standard raise and then you have the cola which is the additional thing which is like as you said more pegged to inflation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's listed in the tentative agreement that these are 4% cost of living adjustments going forward. I, I, I mean, whether we call it that or a raise, I don't know that that's super important. But And so in addition to those, there will also be a $1,250 one-time bonus. Uh, and then for school employees who are in that SEIU local, like local 1021, so uh, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, uh, educators who aren't classed as teachers, all the, the other folks who, who make you know the school function, uh, will receive, instead of a 3% raise, like, retroactively turned into a bonus they are uh, because most of these folks have lower salaries than like a, even the teachers they're getting bonuses for each year that are just lump sum amounts which when you add it all together means that workers who have been working since their contract expired without a raise will get a seven thousand dollar bonus you know re- as a retroactive payment for those years that they've been working without a new contract and then they will receive the same four percent raise as the teachers going forward i mean that's that that hardly seems like it's keeping up with not just inflation but like the expanding cost of living Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know what it's like uh in california but uh like my rent's going up by 10 percent this year so i have to imagine a lot of people's are by even more than that yeah and in addition to that the new contract will raise substitute teacher daily rates by 25%, which, I mean, that's a that's a good boost. Like, that's a, that's a real win. I know that specifically one of the things they'd mentioned it, that they were fighting for is the difficulty of attracting new substitute teachers because of how low the pay was, and mm-hmm. so there's been a big shortage of that. So that will help. It also gives substitute teachers access to COVID sick pay, which is good. I just question why those workers didn't have access to that before. That seems kind of ridiculous, especially since, as we know, schools are a very, you know, likely place for workers to catch COVID. Right. Yeah. Also, just the idea, I one thing that worries me a little bit about that is like, I know that COVID is a very big problem right now, but the idea of calling it COVID sick pay mm-hmm. sounds to me like it's something that's revocable later when they've determined that COVID's no longer a threat. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's absolutely a, a potential uh, issue with this. And then also teachers will get three additional paid days every year for professional development. The other last couple, like specific things that were in here, bus drivers specifically will be get an extra $2,000 retention bonus and new drivers that are hired by the district will get either a 2000 or $5,000 signing bonus, depending on whether they already have their CDL or, or whether they get it through the district's training program. Mm. And these are specifically in there because, Uh, Like one of the things that we mentioned when we talked about this last week was that the district had lost 25% of their bus drivers over the last year and a half. And so this is obviously aimed at, you know, solving that, making it actually more of a sustainable job. Now, unfortunately, again, like all in favor of more money going to workers, but these being bonuses, as we've talked about before, like a one-time bonus seems great, but... It doesn't actually advance the worker's position to the next contract because you'll get to the next contract and you'll have the same wage. Like now they're going to get the 4% raises that all the, all of the SEIU workers will, but you know, it's just whenever there's a bonus in there 
boys have to be a little cautious because they don't it's a one time thing it necessarily mm-hmm. doesn't translate over into the next contract so overall yeah. like i, I was think just going to say i was just going to say like as an example i mean if it's a $5000 bonus it's not going to be a 6 or $7000 bonus for the next contract $9000 right. bonus after that that's that's a number that does not tend to move instead of you know like wages which are tied to a percentage mm-hmm. well and also you you get that bonus in your wages by getting the raise anyway, right. and it gives you more position. It, it it's just so preferable in all ways. Plus, bonuses are a bit insulting, kind of like have you ever had a boss give you like a Christmas ham? That's like a fifteen dollar <laughs> oh, yeah. bonus, and you're supposed to be like, "Thank you." No, man, <laughs> fuck you. That's really insulting. Yeah. So, I mean, this contract, I feel like, uh, unfortunately, like because this just happened, I haven't, I wasn't able to find a whole lot of like write ups from like some of the better labor reporters that I follow that would actually have interviews with members of the union to see what they think. Like I've only seen the actual statements from the union spokespeople who, which will of course, and understandably be very positive about it. So quick take, it seems like a bit of a mixed bag to me. Like, uh, they're mostly the, the things that, that worry me about it is a, how much of the money is, is set up in bonuses and not in what in raises to the fact that, this quote unquote cost of living adjustment is still significantly less than inflation this Mm -hmm. year. Um, And three, the other thing is that while I'm glad there are these raises in here, one of the biggest problems that the teachers identified was the problem of short staffing. And I didn't see anything in the tentative agreement where there was a commitment from the district to hire, say the hundred more teachers that they need to make sure that, that, all the students actually have a full-time teacher in every class. And, and I don't know that a, like a one-time or even a recurring 4% raise is going to be necessarily enough to suddenly pull in all the new recruits they would need to fill that in. Now, all, all that being said, there is one thing that I will say about the raises that is a, a definite win, which is where they came from, which is that they are coming from the district and not just a, a, like, cutting from their own benefits, which is what the district wanted to do. The district had originally proposed, oh, you need a, you need more money. Okay. Yeah. We'll give you a raise. We'll just cut your healthcare by exactly the same amount. <laughs> right. As if that was acceptable. And, and this contract does not do that. It maintains their, their healthcare. And I actually believe for the SEIU members, there are improvements for vision and dental. So that's oh, a good. definite win. So like those, those are real wins. I just, the, the thing that I worry about with this contract from, you know, just, reading what the teachers were fighting for is its ability to solve the problems other than just the fact that they haven't gotten a raise for a couple of years, but specifically to deal with those problems of short staffing, both for teachers, but also for any of the other, you know, positions. So I I think it's going to be sort of a test of time over the next couple of years of this contract to really see if it actually does that or not. As a final thought on this one, it's uh, wild to me that teachers who have to re- like study from books might not have visual vision insurance. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's wild to me. Uh, but in our next set of stories that we will also go through at a blistering pace, <laughs> we are going to be hitting our our, our go into the gamer corner where uh, we're going to be hitting. Four different stories, two of them from Activision Blizzard, uh, one about, you know, just some industry-wide news, and then another from Capcom. 
Very interesting. Yeah. Activision Blizzard, you know, famous fucking hellscape for workers of, uh, you know, sexual harassment and worse, uh, and a generally toxic, often cited as racist work atmosphere, actually had to sign a settlement agreement with the EEOC to pay $18 million towards workers harmed by their actions, which might sound like a lot of money, which is a thing we say on this show <laughs> fairly often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even then, uh, it is it, when they say going towards workers, uh, most of it is actually slated to just go towards charities that the workers want, oh. uh, and the workers themselves have to go through uh, all sorts of hoops to even get any money themselves. Yeah. So this is one of those situations where, like, it's good, but it should be better. Is I think more of the thing here. Like it's mm-hmm. it's good that this lawsuit is forced from the the government is forcing Activision Blizzard to pay up for creating such a fucking awful environment. That being said, as you like, eighteen million dollars does sound like a lot of money, but Activision Blizzard King brought in nearly nine billion dollars in revenue last year and employs mm. ten thousand workers. So, like, that's nine thousand billions. I'm sorry, <laughs> nine thousand millions. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the thing is like from this scale, it's really not a huge dent in their wallet. And so, what the question to me is 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 like is that really going to you know incentivize them to truly solve the issue and i i'm kind of lean towards no cuz like additionally you know they have a couple of other things like cuz this settlement is one of those that's like classed as a consent decree so there is going to be oversight for the next 3 years where they are required to hire uh they're, like they're required to change their internal policies to prevent harassment and discrimination in the workplace although we know how you know, effective those can be if management isn't really behind them. Like, have um, you ever seen in a job application, it's like, we do not discriminate, uh, and then all of a sudden you try to get the job and you realize, holy shit, they actually do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, so they're required to hire an internal uh, equal employment opportunity co- coordinator to ensure that the policies are enacted. They're also required to hire a n- neutral third party consultant to provide oversight during the three years of the consent decree. And then the settlement fund will be like administered by the equal employment opportunity commission, not by ABK. And they will go through claims from workers to make sure that it's going to the right people theoretically. And any unused amount of money from that $18 million will be distributed amongst various charities that are set up to advance women in video games and the tech industry and promote awareness of sexual harassment and gender equality issues. And that's all like, like those are all good. That's all good stuff. Like it's all, it's good to force Activision Blizzard to pay up and to change its policies and to try and enact that stuff. The problem being that when it's a multi-billion dollar company that, you know, employs 10,000 people, I don't know that $18 million is going to be enough to really enforce a real change in the work environment. There. Well, Activision right. Blizzard isn't a fucking person where you can shame it and be like, okay, have you learned right. your lesson now, Sonny? It's like Activision Blizzard King, or ABK, however you want to refer to it, is a huge fucking machine that is built to run the way it's been running, and they're going to only make as few adjustments to their model as seems viable to them. And so in every way that you can force their hand, you have to do it to the absolute max. And this is great that their hand has been forced to some degree, like you said, but like it hasn't been, 
you got to force it a lot further than this. Right. And to go in on what I was kind of referring to about the uh, ability for these workers to even get the compensation, uh, they really have two options. Uh, They can apply for, uh, you know, within this settlement to get claims of what is likely to be relatively small compensation, or they can join the state of California's ongoing lawsuit or file an individual case, but they cannot do both. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. It's wild. Because that's the thing. It puts workers in a bind. If you think that you're only going to get some shitty amount of compensation or you think that the settlement offer is not enough and you think that more needs to be done, which I could totally see like from some of the horror stories we heard that workers faced at ABK, I could see them saying, no, we need to actually force like, you know, more punishment on the company to, to force real change. Then I could totally see like not wanting to, to, you know, be a part of this claim and either join California's ongoing lawsuit against the company or filing their own claim. But if you do that, you forfeit your right to claim anything. So if you go to court and you lose against this multi-billion dollar company's assuredly incredibly high-priced lawyers, then you get nothing and you're not even eligible to make a claim in this settlement. So I don't know. I, I mean, I think for to me, I think despite whatever, you know, uh, posturing we may hear out of the company, I think ABK is probably relatively happy with this settlement that, that mm-hmm. they kind of got off like pretty cheap here. So, yeah. Uh, and in the, in the next piece that we're doing on uh, Activision Blizzard King, we're going to talk a little bit about how how they initially were like, oh, yeah, now you no longer need proof of vaccination for to return to the office. Uh, and it took very little time for them to walk that back because immediately the union within Activision Blizzard King uh, said that they would walk out if that if that policy was actually gone through with, which is really awesome to see workers out there fighting for, you know, pr- health protections under COVID and also shows the power of at least the threat of direct action and then, you know, knowing that they will follow through because they have walked out before. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, seeing all of the pressure that's happening uh, against ABK here from many different angles, from the union organizing front, from the anti-worker harassment front, paying out this settlement, like, they're they're probably feeling scared. They're like, man, a walkout is really the last fucking thing we need right now, you know? Well, and this is all going on as there's a lot of scrutiny right now because of the fact that they're still going through the process of potentially being acquired by Microsoft. Mm. So like there's a lot of regulatory examination of, of their, their business right now. And so they don't really want to do anything to screw that up and lose out on their $70 billion paycheck. Right. In the thought of, of like the union at Activision Blizzard that, you know, that's basically what this is though. I don't, I mean, do they call themselves a union? Well, they're the, they're the ABK workers Alliance, but I mean, I I do think that like to highlight like, how effective that was. Like, as you said, like they threatened to walk out and like, I don't even know if it was 24 hours <laughs> and, and the company was like, okay, no, fine. We're, we're, we're not changing our policy. The individual studios can decide what they want to do. And basically all the major studios that ABK owns were like, we're not rescinding the thing. We uh, it, yeah. we're, we're leaving the vaccination uh, requirement in place. Mm-hmm. Right. But on that on that thought of unions in the gaming industry, there was a little survey that was put out by More Perfect Union that basically said that uh, 58% of workers in the game industry support a union in their workplace, uh, which is a really great number. 
Though, I think one of the things that we can temper that with is the uh, additional st- statistic of only 20% of them thinking that it will actually occur. Yeah. I, I think part of that is, like, the relatively rapid pace at which the union movement has accelerated over the last oh, two years, really. It's really not, like, that much time where we've gone from barely anybody talking about unionizing in the game industry to now we've got a few like indie studios that actually have unions and and obviously the work that's been done over the last year or so by ABK the ABK Worker Alliance to demonstrate that you can build a union in the games industry in one of the biggest companies out there and I just want to like throw a shout out to to our friend Scout who who has done a great job of keeping us posted on all the this news that's going on in the game industry and specifically around unionizing because like more when more perfect union put this out it was trumpeted as like 70 percent of workers in the game industry want a union but scout had actually looked into the data and it's there was some questions that were kind of misleading about what that actually meant it was like do you want a union to exist in the games industry as a whole and that mm. was like 70%. But when it got to, do you want a union at your workplace? It was 58%, which lower than the average around the country for workers. But considering how low that number has been in tech generally and even in games mm-hmm. over the last few years, that's a big jump from where it was. So, you know, we're seeing progress really be made there. Definitely. Yeah, I, I saw somebody posting a chart on Twitter and it was like back in 2009, I think the other the other chart was. It was it was down like in the 20s. It it was yeah. it was the the support for it was very very low. So, you know, big right. strides have been made uh, and STEM nerds are gradually learning that social organizing is good actually and that you should talk to people at parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I think that 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 rise in the pro-union sentiment, as well as the actions that are going on around the industry and also around just like the country and the world on whole, has led to uh, our our bit on Capcom, where they have actually raised salaries by 30%. Yeah, I I mean... I don't know how, where, like, I don't know how, what, what other motivation we could possibly identify. Yeah. Like, I know they, they'll, of course, spin it as, you know, well, we're doing really well and we want to compensate our team and make sure we have the best workers and it's the best place to work for. Companies don't raise <laughs> their workers' wages unless they have to. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is, is, is rather obviously at least heavily inspired by the surge in union organizing within the games industry because... One of the things that we saw from companies like some folks we'll be talking about in a little bit here, Starbucks, mm-hmm. before they got hit by the the recent incredibly cool union wave, was trying to pay, like they basically were obviously trying to find that pay level that was just enough above the average for like a barista to the point where it would suppress the like move for unionization amongst their employees. And I think that the, the push by groups like the ABK workers Alliance and other groups, especially like ones affiliated with like code CWA, which is, you know, the communication workers of America's tech organizing group that has been doing a lot of great stuff to try and, and build unions within the games industry. If that wasn't going on, I, I think it's incredibly unlikely that we would have seen this move. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, yeah, I don't think it's unfair to characterize this as the uh, the Nordic model. 
you know, where there's like there's <laughs> yeah. a distant threat that uh, that, you know, unionizing is becoming more popular at one of the bigger institutions. And you're like, man, my workers are unhappy with me. I might have to give them a fucking raise so they don't do this shit to me. too. <laughs> yeah. One thing I do want to temper this 30% with is that it's a, an average salary raise. And so we yes. don't actually have real statistics breaking down where that 30, like who's getting what, because just like when uh, Chipotle was like, we're putting out, we're getting everyone's average wage up to $15. That still means that someone's being paid $12 an hour. That still mm-hmm. means that like the, you know, sure. Someone who's been there for a long time maybe he's getting a really good raise and that's awesome but we don't actually know uh where that 30 percent figure is really rounding out when it comes to is it the you know are the is the janitorial staff getting a you know a 40 percent raise and then the you know coders or 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 testers are getting 20 or 10 or you know we don't we don't actually know and so i think that uh, be worth looking into that a little bit more as we get more information it's like, who do you count? You know, if Chipotle does it and then they start just including their store managers in their metrics, it's like, boom, job well done, you know, and you didn't do anything. So, right. But <laughs> I mean, still, I think overall, like these stories kind of just taken together as a whole and part of the reason, you know, we wanted to group them together here is to show that there is real movement and real material wins being made by the workers' movement within the games industry, even, you know, in advance of potential NLRB recognition that we're actually seeing real wins being made by organized workers right now. And and speaking of places where we're seeing real wins for organized workers, uh, we've got another sort of lightning round setup story here where there's been a flurry of organizing within colleges and universities around the country over the last several weeks. And each one of those individual stories, like, you know, we could do as a whole big thing, but since they haven't necessarily involved strikes, it's been difficult to work them in there. So we figured we would just kind of try and take a bunch of them together and and try and give folks a picture of how much organizing is really going on right now in higher education. And Mm -hmm. so just to start, like first at the beginning of March, Wesleyan University agreed to voluntarily recognize their student workers union if they pass card check, which made them actually the first private university to agree to do so. And a couple of weeks later on March 22nd, the workers easily cleared card check. It wasn't even close with 84% of student workers signing their cards to show that they wanted a union. And yeah, I think that that figure, uh, not I mean, sure, when it comes to these workers, they do have more of a bent towards unionization. But I think this really outlines how much card check really is like the thing that we should be using and really shows mm-hmm. the actual interest in unionization because a lot of people get really scared of a second election, the one that sure. is, you know, mandated by the NLRB once card check is done, assuming voluntary recognition is not provided by the company or institution. So, I mean, really, if we if we just like had card check, you know, as provided under the PRO Act, then I think that we would see a massive boost and we would be seeing these 84 percent nut figures uh, more or less all over the uh, every industry. Well, we would see the fruits of democracy actually happening in workplaces. (laughs) That's incredible. I've never seen anything like that. We literally haven't. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, so these student workers, these are like uh, community advisors, uh, RAs and house managers and all kinds of stuff. And they've been getting stipends that are between $7,800 and $9,800, which they say are about half the cost of room and board at Wesleyan. So they're getting this stipend and then they're just, they have to turn around and give it back to Wesleyan. Yep. And then they have to give Wesleyan another 7800 <laughs> to $9,800 on top of that. It's like, hey, look... You guys, I don't want to tell you what to do with your union, but maybe you should bargain for free room and board. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, organizers pointed that out. Like, uh, they mentioned that, like, for instance, nearby schools like UConn, for student workers, just waives room mm-hmm. and board fees, as would make sense. And, and in, in a letter that they addressed to Wesleyan officials, they stated... In addition to being underpaid, ResLife staff have endured poor and hazardous working conditions without adequate support and protections, especially during the pandemic. And so, you know, these workers are now going to be bargaining, you know, not only to get higher stipends, not only to try and get things like, uh, you know, room and board actually paid for, but to for a lot of the same stuff that we see it pretty much anywhere else to make sure that they have a say in COVID policies and just generally in how their workplace is run to make sure that it's safe for the workers there. And, and they're going to be now bargaining with Wesleyan as from, as the Wesleyan union of student employees, which is affiliated with the office and professional employees union, local 153. So right. congrats to the Wesleyan students. And, yeah. And in the spirit of uh, universities recognizing card checks, uh, we have a public university that I don't think is form. I guess they're recognizing the union cause they're agreeing to bargain with it. Right. So that counts. As, yeah, as recognizing yeah, yeah. the union based on card checks. So this is at New Mexico State University. Uh, the union that they've just created will now represent 800 graduate workers. And like I said, the school has agreed to bargain with them. Uh, their union is called M- NMSU Graduate Workers United. Uh, and they've been fighting for months to get the university to recognize the union. And they've been trying to focus on the fact that they are not provided any health insurance mm-hmm. and are only given $12,000 a year after deducting tuition, which is like, uh, you couldn't, you couldn't live in a cardboard box in this country for $12,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. Yeah. And, and so this is, you know, another example where when you actually have a, a workplace, take a neutral stance. Mm-hmm. And let the workers do, as as you said, Lena, do their first election and not have to do a whole second one. The workers usually went out. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And so now that the union has been recognized by New Mexico State, the workers are going to be looking forward to addressing, you know, the fact that they don't have fucking health insurance in the middle of a pandemic when now fucking COVID tests aren't free anymore because the government just surrendered to the disease. And so if you don't have insurance, you basically can't get testing because who the fuck's going to go out there and pay $125 every time they need to get tested? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, even if you had paid sick time, I mean, you, uh, based on the pay rates around the around the country, uh, you would have to, like, have, what, two or three days worth of sick time to even, like, pay for the COVID test itself. Yeah, yeah it's... Yeah. Fucking wild. And so moving on to our next victorious union on the March 24th, the Clark University Graduate Workers United uh, organization who are out of Worcester, Massachusetts, announced their victory in their union election where they actually went to a second election. Their first election, the workers had 70 percent sign their cards, which is the bar that most you know major unions uh, usually recommend that you clear in your first election Mm -hmm. 
usually because they're worried about getting a lower result in the second election. However, in this case, the Clark graduate workers actually got a higher level of support in their second election with 93% of the vote voting in favor of organization. And so, you know, easily winning their election and they will now be represented by the Clark University Graduate Workers United associated with Teamsters Local 170. Well, and hopefully that's a sign of like people being more like excited about joining a union and that the idea that you would have the election would empower people to vote uh which i which we know is not generally the case which is why you're pointing out like it's it's rare that the second election has a higher percentage uh although with the way that unionization is going in certain cases we might see this more often where people will be like wait we actually are gonna get a union fuck yeah i'm gonna vote yes yeah i mean i think it's easy to imagine that uh, like uh, a lot of union drives get their you know 70 percent initial uh card check and they're like oh okay uh you know we're in pretty good shape right and then they kind of like take it easy a little bit and if you capitalize on that moment to use a word that i don't necessarily like but like (laughs) if if you opportunize on that that's not really that much better uh if you seize that moment (laughs) there you go yeah and you uh, and, and you really fucking go for it and, and continue to increase your base. Uh, that's how you win. That's how that's and that's how yeah. you continue to have momentum after you win your union as well. Although now that I'm thinking about it just a little bit more, we do have to take into consideration that a card check is based on the entire amount of eligible voters, and that the second election is based on the number of actual voters. So right. it could yeah. be that it's the same people who voted yes, and that there was just very few people who voted no, and many abstentions. So we don't actually know. Although we do know that, you know, the Clark University grad workers United have been really, really active in fighting for this union, because even prior to the election, after workers health care premiums increased, but their wages didn't during the last school year, the workers as part of their union drive did enough direct action like petitioning and and handing out all their demands talking to all their their workers and you know threatening more advanced direct action they actually got the school to agree to subsidize half of their healthcare premiums obviously it should be whole but mm-hmm. i mean considering they weren't subsidized at all before And they managed to get that win even before their union was recognized. So one of the things that I think is important to emphasize about a lot of these stories that, you know, we've been talking about this is that, like, as we've said on the show before, it's like whether your union is recognized or not, once you have workers fighting together for their collective interests, you have a union and you can do this sort of work to not only get your immediate material interests like this to get, you know, the school to pay for half their healthcare premiums, but those sorts of intermediate steps, those immediate wins, all those can do is build support for your union in the second election. So, you know, excellent work by these folks. Yeah. Imagine if their first contract fills out that other half of the premiums. Right. Who knows? But yeah. in the final story that we're going to be covering in this, uh, you know, student union roundup is going to be at Dartmouth, where there has been, and we mentioned this being really rare before, a unanimous victory in the oh, yeah. union election uh, back on the 30th of March. Yeah. I mean, usually you get at least one curmudgeon who, for whatever reason, <laughs> doesn't want to bargain in their own interests a union <laughs> killed my dad <laughs> yeah he was a pinkerton 
<laughs> yeah, but here, you know, we have the the this is a a union of undergraduate dining services workers at Dartmouth who voted 52 to 0 on March 30th Woo. to to organize together and and this happened this organizing process here at Dartmouth started after the university decided to increase like the student body size by 400 students without adding any additional workers to the dining staff, yeah. which like is just going to make work so much harder for the existing workers there. And the other thing, and this is something that happens all the time, but I don't think it's talked about a lot and is especially crucial when we're talking about universities. I know we talked about this a little bit when we, we were talking with the you know student workers of Columbia strike. But one of the things that the unit that Dartmouth had been doing was essentially over exploiting their international students by posting a lower minimum wage on campus than in the rest of the town that the school is in offering only $13 an hour vice the town's $15 an hour. And the reason that's a big deal is that these international students can either work at camp at the university or not work. They can't like because their visas don't allow them to work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So they're forced to accept whatever wage that the university will give them unless they're organized. And and which really I think is is one of those situations that just you know screams the need for a union there. Yeah. Well, and they're so organized. I mean, 52 to 0. Oh my god. Dining services workers at Dartmouth, nothing but net folks. That's incredible. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, even before winning this election, they already got a 50% raise and COVID pay just through their own direct actions, you know, threatening to walk out, threatening to strike. Mm-hmm. Like, again, these sorts of organized demands, you should do them if you have the, you know, the people, popular support, whether the, the uh, union is recognized by the institution or not. Because, yeah. you know, it, that your organized worker power is real, whether it has that official NLRB stamp of approval or not. Right. Yeah. And like these things are horribly undercovered. And I'm really glad to be, you know, covering some of these really great wins by workers. Uh, though we're going to be moving to one of the most covered union movements. Yeah. Uh, not quite to the big one that I know that you're waiting for. Uh, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to. We're going to be talking again about Starbucks workers, where I just want to fill people in on the total of un- of unions in Starbucks right now. But based on More Perfect Union's tracker, there is 190 st- 196 total stores with unions, whether they've filed or not, uh, currently at Starbucks, which is just an awesome number. I mean, I'm I'm so excited. I mean, I'm thinking, what, we get 1,000 within two years? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. At this pace, yeah. I mean, why not? And that's I mean, that's already thousands of workers. And I mean, so this well, the story that we're going to cover now, like, happened on Friday, which as everyone knows at this point, all our listeners are well aware, was a rather uh, mo- monumental day in U.S. labor for the story we're going to get to after this one. But I wanted to highlight this because this is not just one more store Starbucks store with 10 people winning an election, which is worth covering even if it was. And that's why we've tried to cover every one of them on the show. Mm-hmm. But on Friday, the New York City Reserve Roastery 
voted to unionize 46 to 36, which gave the Starbucks Workers United movement their single biggest organizing win of the campaign so far and got them one of only three of these, you know, flagship reserve roastery stores that are in the entire country. And so, like, that's basically like the hub of Starbucks's business in New York. And now <laughs> that hub is union. That's Hell right. Yeah. Fucking awesome. I mean, I'm just, yeah, I'm just so pumped about all of these awesome wins. Uh, I think that we have this uh, quote here from Sam Legault. Today, we at the Roastery showed the world what can be built when we stand together in solidarity as workers and humans who understand our value. Hell yeah. 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 So like a lot of places, this Roastery had been facing understaffing issues, right? They had low wages, they had bad benefits, and so unsurprisingly, when they lost employees, they had trouble replacing them. Mm -hmm. Uh I don't know, unless it's just nobody wants to work, but I'm 99% <laughs> sure it's the low wages. and I can't stop saying it because it just feels like a the, the worst joke at this point. It's so funny with how many people I see out there looking for jobs. It really feels like nobody wants to hire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, so you have roastery workers like this guy, Mark Mao, who said it just feels like, okay, my job is getting harder. I've worked through this pandemic with you, but it just seems like the staff is not being acknowledged or recognized for the work that they've done. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us have faced that during the pandemic and immediately after, especially when there's incredibly high turnover rates. And a lot of times your boss is just like, okay, you can do the job of three people, right? Even though your job, all those jobs are already each the job of three people. So just do the work of nine people. Not a big deal. We love a good Mal quote. Yeah, that's (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And and so, I mean, you know, workers at the roastery faced, you know, the same union busting campaign that we've heard from Starbucks workers all across the country, captive audience meetings, constant bombardment with anti-union propaganda, organizers being targeted with infractions for things that happened months before the campaign started, an influx of new management to spy on workers. I mean, to we have like every single one of the, the places, except really the one in Seattle. Um, you've got all sorts of ULP charges filed against Starbucks during this for, for threats of retaliation and termination. Like to, we've gotten to the point where when I wrote the notes for this, <laughs> they were up to 70 ULP charges have been filed by SB workers United against the company since the campaign has begun, which I already know has gone up today because like before we get into the big story, like I just want to highlight a couple of, of quick hit stories from mm-hmm. Starbucks about how the repression has been cy- cycling up as the union drive sees more and more success. Like, so there was a picket held last weekend in like just outside Buffalo at a Starbucks location in Depew in New York after management fired a leading union organizer there where, uh, Angel Krempa was fired after she was, after the company claimed she was late to the store twice However, and perhaps my co-hosts who I know have, have worked at Starbucks and would know the policies better than me, they, she noted that she was late because of car trouble and she notified store management before she was late, which is supposed to be, you know, like, uh, apparently from what I read, that's the policy, which is that like, if you notify management that you're going to be late and you're not like some crazy amount late, then it doesn't, isn't a fireable offense. Yeah. And also being late twice isn't a fireable offense in general. 
So yeah. it doesn't even matter. I mean, on every level, they're just fucking lying. Like when, when they fire somebody who is an mm-hmm. active union organizer for a minor offense, you don't have to guess. You don't have to know the handbook. It's always punitive. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they're also trying these tactics to force out student workers who are organizing at a location in Ithaca, New York, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a big college town, because basically one of the things that they're trying to do is deny any time off or leave for the Starbucks workers and threatening to fire them if they call out during spring break, which is a period where the store doesn't really see much like business because all the students who would normally be patronizing the place are not there. And so like this policy is clearly set up to try and be like, no, you can't have time off during a time nobody's going to be here and you were planning on being on spring break. I guess if you really need that time off, you should just quit mm-hmm. people who are trying to organize. Yeah, that's so, fucking ridiculous. And then the last one of these I wanted to highlight just actually happened uh, yesterday. Uh, this would be uh, April 4th, where Starbucks fired union organizer Layla Dalton in Phoenix, despite there already being a formal NLRB complaint against the company for specifically harassing her. Howard like, Schultz is back, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if, if the, any of these stories highlighted the like toothlessness of, of U.S. labor law and, and NLRB, like, you know, a bit like punishments, it would be this one. Like, there is already an official complaint saying, hey, you are retaliating against this union organizer for for organizing. You need to stop. And they're like, oh, word? No, she's fired. Yeah. <laughs> and just literally just daring the NLRB to do anything about it. Yeah, because they know they won't because the NLRB isn't the really the National Labor Relations Board. They're the National uh, Just Let Businesses Do Whatever the Fuck Board. <laughs> yeah. I know it doesn't make a good acronym <laughs> <laughs> and i mean like even if they do end up doing something it's going to be so far down the road that i'm uh i'm already getting to the next uh story that that starbucks <laughs> is gonna uh they're gonna have gotten through they're gonna have gotten their whatever win they feel like they're gonna get from this anyway by reducing the power of the union or this or that though i don't think that that has panned out for them and if anything has been uh, more of a example as to why everybody needs a union in uh, everywhere, but also specifically in Starbucks, just because that could be you. Like, that could be anyone. Like, this is just someone who's like, hey, this is my right. I can, uh, you know, f- be in a union. I can fight for being in a union. And uh, your retaliation against us uh, is now starting to be pretty fucking uh, shitty. Yeah, I mean... Thankfully, because of how big the Starbucks Workers United movement has gotten, as you mentioned, we're at almost 200 stores having filed at this point. Uh, You know, the workers aren't, they're not just waiting for the NLRB to do something here. You've got, in all these places where workers have been fired, you've got GoFundMes that have been set up to help folks out. And if I find one for for, um, any of the people we were just talking about, I will post them in the notes. You also have, you know, protests, community rallies, like the workers are still, you know, fighting back. And in pretty much every one of these, actually, no, yeah, every one of these places where they fired a union organizer and there has subsequently been a union election, the union has still won. So, 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's this scorched earth campaign. I'm not really sure it's going to work, but yeah. So I know everybody at this point has been waiting for like the big fucking earthquake labor story that happened last Friday, mm-hmm. but we're not it's, even there yet, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got to take a second and get to the other Amazon election that was happening last Friday. That's and right. just briefly to give an update for people, because you know, the, the news about the ALU kind of drowned everything else out completely understandably, but one of the wilder things about the election be happening last Friday is that it was going on at the same time as the vote count for the redo in Bessemer. And so unfortunately the, we're not actually going to know the outcome of the Bessemer election for a few weeks because when the final vote tally was counted in Bessemer for the redo, we had actually had a way lower per, um, participation than the first election, which was, interesting, I think really speaks to the incredibly large amount of union busting that was being done by Amazon there, mm-hmm. where you just had a lot of people who were like, okay, fine, fuck this. I'm, I'm not voting. I'm not getting involved with this. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, because for a, you know, a place that had like a 6,000 person bargaining unit, there were just over 2,000 votes cast. And the final tally was 875 votes for the union, 993 votes against with 59 ballots not counted. However... The reason we're not going to know what the results are for a couple of weeks is that there were over 400 challenged ballots. And so since the margin of victory for Amazon in the counted ballots is like 118 votes, the 416 challenged ballots are going to determine like what the actual outcome is, right. how many of them get counted, how many get thrown out, how many are for the union, how many are against. So that's going to be hashed out by the RWDSU's lawyers, Amazon's lawyers, and the NLRB as they go through and resolve all these challenges over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and I wanted to make sure to include the uh, 59 voided uh, votes because uh, and I, I, I know that, I mean, those are probably no votes uh, specifically because people in the union who are voting pro, pro uh, voting for the union are more likely to be educated in how to actually fill out the ballot correctly. But just make sure you actually f- actually follow the instructions. Don't check both boxes. Don't sign your name. Don't do any of that extra stuff. No matter how excited you are, check the yes box and put the ballot in in <laughs> the box because otherwise mm-hmm. your vote could be in just not counted. Uh, and that's 59 votes that were not counted. I mean, like I said, there's a good chance that a lot of those are no votes because those people probably, you know, didn't, uh, chose to abstain from the, uh, education from the, the unionized worker or the union workers. But, um, but yeah, I just wanted to quick point that one out. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. Cause Amazon's probably been going to every length to confuse every issue they can. I mean, does anybody know if the mailbox is still there? Hmm? Uh, yes. Oh, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, what it I is, thought. Just slightly moved. And so, you know, there was a statement from RWDSU president, Stuart Applebaum, after the vote count where he said, every vote must be counted. Workers at Amazon endured a needlessly long and aggressive fight to unionize their workplace with Amazon doing everything it could to spread misinformation and deceit, which is 100% true. And so, look, obviously we hope that these get resolved, that that however many of the ballots get counted, that they're all yeses and it tips the scales and Bessemer becomes a unionized Amazon warehouse. But even if it doesn't, I still think that how close this was because the first vote was not really that close. And this is a Mm -hmm. fucking nail biter. So even if they didn't get it, I do think it speaks to a pretty good job done by the RWDSU in their second attempt. 
Yeah, but and then in the largest <laughs> union victory since the 1960s, mm-hmm. we have JFK 8 organized by the Amazon Labor Union, uh, Chris Smalls, and and all of the or- the worker organizers within the Amazon Labor Union won their election. Like I, I you know, I, I'm still riding high on this victory with the oh, nearly. What, it, it was over 500 votes in margin in favor of the union, which was 20, uh, 2,654 votes for the union and then 2,131 votes against. That is a 55% to 45% vote, 10% margin in favor of the union. Holy shit. Yeah, it's fucking huge. And a union led by a guy who was fucking fired by the company two years ago, uh, who has just been on fire every time you aim a camera at him. Like, an intensely quotable and memeable guy. <laughs> we want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space, because when he was up here, we were starting to keep it up. Yeah, we were starting to keep it up. He's in. I'm pretty sure he watched the count. Yeah, I mean, Friday was a fucking amazing day (laughs) for for U.S. labor. Like, definitely the most riveting live stream I have ever watched of five (laughs) lawyers in a room holding up pieces of paper and saying, yes, no, yes, no, and then counting to 50 over and over again. (laughs) I didn't know you were watching C-SPAN. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, basically, it was like it was wild though because you know when you watch those things in the past, I like I've watched a couple of different union things in the past. It can be so boring, but this one surprisingly wasn't because of how many yes votes were coming in. And like Dan was saying with the other one, it was kind of a nail biter as you were going through, and suddenly we were getting some updates on the actual numbers via the ALU's Twitter, and it's look, it's like oh they've got a hun- they're up a hundred and fifty votes. Oh, look, they're up 200 votes. Oh, they're up only 170 votes. And then they're up 400 votes. And you're <laughs> yeah. just like, holy shit, this is fucking awesome. Well, everybody, yeah, everybody that was commenting on it kept saying, like, I don't want to be too optimistic. And then, like, two tweets later, they're like, I'm starting to get really optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, look, I, I'll be totally honest here. Like, I, I, we've always tried to, you know, we try and have that revolutionary optimism on the show as much as possible. I didn't think that ALU was going to pull it off. I like to to be completely honest, be, just because the, like, you know they're brand new, they're totally independent. They didn't have that ba- like the even the backing, just the legal backing of a, a major union mm-hmm. up against the most sophisticated, most expensive, most well resourced anti union campaign you can fucking buy for, with Amazon, where they spent four point three million dollars just on fucking. L- lawyers mm-hmm. <laughs> to bust the union. That doesn't even count all the propaganda, all the fucking marketing and shit they were doing. Millions of dollars just to stop this union busting campaign. So I, I, I was, I, you know, I was uh, hoping, but not particularly optimistic. And I have very rarely in my life been so happy to be completely fucking wrong. <laughs> yeah, Hell absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like in the money sentiment, I think one of the things that's been going around around is uh, the little uh, quote that was saying like uh, Amazon spent a million dollars per uh, worker organizer. Like, <laughs> yeah, like that just shows how militant the you know the ruling class is going to be against people just trying to get some fucking democracy and better working conditions. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it it really is just so remarkable to have done it without a uh, an existing major union backing you in this fight, like you said, Dan, because, like, how many people voted? It was, like, close to 5,000 votes that mm-hmm. actually got tallied, right? And, yeah. and that's an insane amount of people to mobilize within to, to achieve a majority yes vote. That's, like, truly fucking incredible. I mean, I'm just going to say it. David and Goliath. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, a- absolutely. Because I mean, this what what Chris Smalls and all the other workers pulled off here is literally historic. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just that. Like, this is the first you know Amazon warehouse that will be unionized in the country, which is already monumental. But like, as you, as you mentioned, like Nina, this is the biggest single bargaining unit win in an NLRB election in fifty years like by people who were given no chance by anyone to win which just makes the story like all the cooler and so one of the things that i wanted to get into while talking about this like is not just you know gloating about it and being incredibly happy about it which is awesome but also to point out like some of how they won uh there because there's been a you know ton of articles that have come out talking with the the organizers chris smalls and, and all the other folks that are on their their organizing team and it you know, it really highlights the power of rank and file worker led organizing because one of the things that, because I've, I've read at least half a dozen, maybe 10 uh, interview articles, like, you know, since, since then, interviewing all these folks. And, and, and the things that really I think stood out were A, the extreme dedication of all of the leadership of the ALU, the amount of hours that these people put in is, incredible like it total 100 percent dedication from like this from every one of these people complete investment like and like 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 being there every day being going there going to work organizing on your shift during your break and then when your shift's over like maybe going home to like feed your cat and then going back out to organize and to be at the bus stop every day to talk to workers and the things that they were emphasizing were you know that one of the strongest tools they had to push back against Amazon's anti-union campaign was because they were totally worker-led, because the decisions being made at the top of the ALU are by people who either worked there or used to work there, and by people who therefore knew what all of the issues on the shop floor were and could talk to the specific problems being faced by the workers at JFK 8. That whole argument of, well, the union's a business, it's an outside company, they're going to get between us and management— that doesn't fly when you can just say, what do you mean? I work here. I work over on the other side of the warehouse. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think another thing is a, that's a testament to that is uh, using some of the tactics that we really try to highlight here when we're going over the most effective ways of organizing is, like you said, it's a rank and file movement. But even uh, one of the worker organizers was saying that they used a specific text from Communist Party organizer uh, William Z. Foster uh, called Organizing methods in the steel industry which is a very old book but Mm -hmm. somehow oh it actually really applies today it's almost like class interest is very similar (laughs) yeah Yeah. and i mean we've talked about before like especially if folks have listened to our recent series on the decline of the u.s labor movement what how big of a blow the purge of communist organizers from like the CIO and other major labor federations in the United States was during the Red Scare and how much that hamstrung unions. And now you have the biggest fucking win 
in private industry organizing in the U.S. in half a century, and there's a bunch of communists and anarchists and socialists and leftists who wouldn't be near the leadership of any major union federation, and they're at the fucking head of it. Because, again, a class-based organizing process works. Yeah. Well, and that very same ALU organizer, Justine Medina, talking a little bit about the actual organizing strategy that they used, she said stuff that, you know, it sounds pretty fucking communist. It sound, it, she said, do not be afraid to fight to get as dirty as the bosses will to match or beat the energy they're bringing. Do not be afraid to agitate and to antagonize the bosses as a union should. Use every tool in your toolbox. File those unfair labor practice charges every chance you get. Protest and do collective action. Keep building. And that's like, shit, that's exactly what we say on this fucking show because it couldn't fucking be more right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. The structure of labor hasn't changed, so the same tool, these tools from the 1930s will fucking work if you just use them. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that has been highlighted in a few of the pieces that we that I looked at, and I think we talked about this during the union drive, but I don't know that this if this has been done at other union drives before, but it's the first one that I've seen when we had that leaked audio from one of the captive audience meetings Mm -hmm. where the Amazon consultant or whatever Mm -hmm. is up there doing their bullshit, lying about the union. And the ALU organizers are just like, hey, that's not true. What about this? And just start challenging them Mm -hmm. and just start saying, hey, what about this? What about this? That's not true. And saying, we need to have equal time to hear the union side of things. And that level of like, aggressive organizing not like you know they weren't up there like telling them to fuck off and like making like they weren't being like crazy disruptive or anything they were simply holding their ground and saying you know people need to hear the truth and the facts about this from the people who are leading the drive who are the workers at the amazon facility and that i think is is such a powerful move and and one that is really i also only possible in a worker-led drive because if it's being organized from a, a purely professional staff point of view, like a lot of business unionist drives are, where the orchestration of the union drive is being done from like consultants from the, the Union International, they're not going to be able to get into those well, you know, captive audience meetings because they're not mm-hmm. employed at the facility. And that's going to make it a lot harder to do something like this. Well, and I think that one of the things to really point out here is the militancy of the movement here. And and not to, to really kind of clarify what that means, and it's not just like who's the loudest. It's about right. being principled. It's about mm-hmm. ha- knowing what you should and shouldn't be doing and agitating actively and knowing what you're talking about. And all of these people clearly knew what they were talking about and were well-trained by their fellow workers, by their fellow worker organizers, and stood their ground and got their fucking win. Yeah, and I mean, the 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 stuff that they emphasize that they were doing all the time is, you know, it's the sort of thing that organizers, that honestly, that you should, that I think are effective, no matter what kind of organizing you're doing, if it's union mm-hmm. organizing, if it's socialist organizing, Organizing, if it's you know, anti-racist organizing, any sort of organizing where you want to, you know, get that you want to bring in people from the working class and and make them a part of your movement and empower them to make change and not just be like, I want to add somebody to this email list or whatever. Right. Like, you know, having cookouts, barbecues with free food. I think some of them had free weed, like, uh, (laughs) but also like 
constant one-on-ones, all of the organizers making sure that they're available to answer questions that anybody has at any time. They, one of the things that they mentioned in a few of the articles that I read was the diversity in the you know, organizing group where you had people from everywhere. Like one of the guys who was one of the organizers for them, I remember reading about was he's a, an African immigrant who has like a PhD, but was because of the pandemic wasn't, was laid off from his job at a private school and was forced to do, you know, to support his family was forced to take a job at Amazon. And he speaks like five languages. And so, you know, the, at an 8,000 person facility serving New York city, you're going to have a pretty diverse you know, workforce, mm-hmm. and they were able to leverage that with giant, you know, WhatsApp chats and stuff, and Telegram channels where they could post their messages to everybody in like five different languages, and really, and and, and also, you know, understanding that like we should embrace that diversity instead of being afraid of it, instead of thinking, oh, if, if, if we talk about this, if we, you know, uh, try and embrace the different backgrounds of different people, that's just going to drive wedges between people. It's like, no, you have to embrace, that is the strength of the working class is our diversity. And, and these organizers embraced it. They made sure to, you know, come to each person, every organizing conversation, honestly, and to try and, and find out what are the needs of each one of those people so that the movement can address their needs so that they can become a part of that movement and really feel real ownership of the campaign. And so like, I mean, they, we talked about on the show, all the different, you know, actions they did walkouts, like protests in times square protests at one of Jeff Bezos's houses in Manhattan. And I mean, Chris Smalls like said it really well himself. He said, we showed them that we're fearless. We did rallies in front of the building. We showed them better than we can talk about it. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, he's been boasting that uh, since the victory, he's been hit up by tons of other Amazon workers to try and figure mm-hmm. out what was working in this campaign. And I mean, he was mentioning that there's another election coming up in a, another warehouse nearby. That's right. Yeah, in like three weeks. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're looking forward to that. Hopefully, I mean, maybe this uh, this momentum will carry over. I mean, oh oh man, if it is, <laughs> if it does. I mean, it'd be I, nice I, to I, see I, Amazon go the way that Starbucks is going right now. I mean, that would be absolutely enormous. That would be a huge moment. It, and one of my favorite parts, though, of this story is like one of perhaps the most like delicious parts of this story is how Amazon responded to Chris <laughs> Small's original protest when he was fired in 2020 and the move to try and, and unionize at the facility because. At the time, like shortly after his original firing in 2020 for protesting their lack of COVID protections, and then his his move to try and organize the warehouse, there was a leaked email that was obtained by Vice, where Amazon's general counsel David Zapolsky wrote, "quote He's not smart or articulate, and to the extent the press want to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than simply explaining for the umpteenth time how we're trying to protect workers." <laughs> Which, like. <laughs> Uh, a racist b yeah <laughs> fucking wrong yeah. oh <laughs> yeah. my god he's proven to be so fucking charismatic and such a good public yeah. speaker like you really couldn't ask for anyone better you know the quote that went around on twitter where he says like uh 
we want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space because while he was up there, we were organizing a union. Fucking banger. <laughs> when the reporter yeah. asked him, like, do you have any message for AOC specifically? He said, hell no, she doesn't deserve this moment. Banger. Uh, and then when people <laughs> asked him, like, uh, you know, would you support us if we tried to organize at other Amazon facilities? He said, whatever anybody is doing against Amazon, shit, they got my support. There's plenty of Amazon buildings. Pick one. Banger. Like, this guy has nothing but <laughs> bangers. To offer up. Well, yeah. even on top of of of, of Chris Small's uh, awesome presence, I mean, like these are we have so many new uh, organizers with experience who are going to go mm-hmm. out there, and I mean, maybe they're not going to be at Amazon forever. They're going to be in other workplaces. I mean, shit. Before I was in my first union movement, I knew almost nothing about labor. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that, and and that one victory carried me through even to today, where I am just so overjoyed to to be celebrating these workers' victory. Hell yeah! I yeah. mean, it, it, the the main thing I really want to get across to the people of the world is it's like if you took the energy you spent getting hyped up about bourgeois elections and you just funneled it mm-hmm. into workplace organizing, holy shit, we'd be a lot further along by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean. Uh, of course, unsurprisingly, Amazon says they plan to challenge the election, and they've specifically alleged, quote, undue influence by the NLRB. Okay, that's my favorite part. <laughs> that, that's, that's the part that made me laugh the most, because I was like, undue influence by the who? <laughs> the NLRB? <laughs> You're talking about the same NLRB we talk about. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. Which, it, my favorite response to that was somebody just like posted the drill tweet where they're like, make sure that you, po- you print that I'm not mad. Make sure everybody knows I'm not. I'm definitely not <laughs> mad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I that that was wild because they didn't have anyone else to point to because they can they can they, they've already tried to third party the union. We already talked about how that didn't fucking work because they are not. Mm-hmm. They are the workers. And there's like, uh, who who else do we blame? Uh, uh. <laughs> The, and they like, already, you know, tried to use the NYPD against the union. Mm-hmm. Like you, uh, they, they, they have everything stacked in their fucking court, and they still got beat by ten percent. And so, uh, and I saw somebody making the good comparison. Like it's like you got blown out by three touchdowns, and you blame the refs. Like, yeah, come the fuck on, have some fucking dignity, and take your L. Yeah, well, that's not Amazon's way. No, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I do think though that like. You know, as much as we can say about it, I think the the best like takeaway from this is kind of what the ALU tweeted right after they won, which is they said, if you ever doubt your power as a lone worker, remember that Amazon spent $1 million in union busting costs per worker organizer on our campaign. The power to connect with the people you work with and care about is the power to change the world. Solidarity forever. Fuck Hell yeah. yeah. Ha, and that's that's such a cool like badge of honor for the the uh, uh, worker organizers to carry with them too. like how many people can say like, yeah, one of the biggest companies in the world spent a million dollars trying to stop me and they failed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. Honestly, a lot a, a lot of victories in heavy union busting campaigns are like that. I mean, I think that in the one that we were doing, they were spent. Uh, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like seriously like a hundred thousand dollars in just a couple days, mm-hmm. just uh, like for for fourteen people. Yeah, like- yeah. I mean, <laughs> it it's fucking crazy. So I, this victory is absolutely incredible, and you know, I it's 
it's really important, you know, that we try and learn everything we can from it. Like, uh, I, I mean, if you're in our discord in the labor organizing channel, I've been posting every single interview I can find with any of the organizers because like, this is such an incredible victory. And I, and I really do think like the more that we learn about it, the more that it really just emphasizes that like, Worker-led rank-and-file organizing that is set up to be democratic so that the workers actually have control over their own organizing campaign is effective when you let it be. <laughs> like, and, and, and that this can be replicated, maybe not in exactly the same way. Every you know, organizer isn't going to be as charismatic as Chris Smalls or have his incredible level of drip or like, you know, there, <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of different, you know, aspects to it. But the core strategy that he and the other incredible organizers at the ALU put together, like we can learn from all of that and we can apply that to other drives. And, and I, I, I mean, we talked about, like you mentioned that that other facility in Staten Island has a union election coming up in a few weeks. And like before I would have said, Oh yeah, I mean that this was put together way too fast. This will never win. But at this point, seeing the effort they put in, seeing the tactics they've used, it's hard for me to doubt them. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to that election in a few weeks and to seeing what is going to happen as, you know, this energy and this momentum gets picked up and spread throughout the country. Well, well and I also have trouble imagining that the momentum from this is, isn't going to, like, infect the other Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. Like, they're literally yeah. neighbors. Like, these, some of these workers probably fucking know each other. Like, I... I in, I'm like the Twitter users right now. Like, I don't want to be too optimistic. Two tweets later, I'm starting to feel pretty optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Hell yeah. Well, in order to keep this momentum going, we're going to move through this into the meme review where our first one is actually a meme. I'm pretty sure this is made by one of the people in our Discord, right? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. (laughs) I thought that this one was like, oh, yeah, I tried to take a crack at it. I mean, like, there's been a couple of those lately, so I could be mixing it up. But anyway, let's just go in on the meme. If you uh, did make this meme, you did a good job. I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so this is Kermit putting his hand on uh, what's the little alien looking Muppet? I don't know. Well, anyway, I don't know his name. My Muppet lore knowledge is fairly shallow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, it's uh, we don't like what the union has done to our workers. (laughs) My brother in Christ, you hired the organizers. (laughs) 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 I love that that sentiment. Uh, You know, the worker organizers are. You know, that's like that's the on the company. Like those those are the people that are in there. They are. I mean, they're right there. I don't know. They're, I don't know. How those else are your employees. In. You saw their resume and said, "I should hire this person." This is on you, bud. Uh, yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is slide guy. They said they hastily made OC right there. <laughs> oh well, hell yeah, well done, excellent. Uh, and the the next one we've got. We're continuing with the same theme here because you know after a victory like that, it's it's definitely worth at least two related memes, like. We've got the two panel from The Simpsons where Bart has lost his pants and he's labeled here Jeff Bezos and just saying, this is the worst day of my life. But then, you know, Homer's coming up to try and give him a pep talk. Homer's labeled the union. And now it's the worst day of your life so far. (laughs) That's right. That's that's what I'm talking about. That's the energy that we've been talking about, the momentum. Uh, I'm, I'm pumped. Jeffrey Bozos, <laughs> blown the fuck out. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm glad you to, didn't die in yeah. space so you can see what's going to happen to your company. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm not glad he didn't die in space. 
Uh, and then to to you know go into some other memes, we've got uh, this one where it's just looks like something that was posted at a workplace, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's covered in plastic, so it's clearly put there by someone who has the authority to put something in the plastic. And it says things that don't require effort, being on time, work ethic, effort, body <laughs> language, doing extra, being prepared, and attitude. It's like, and then, and then in big, uh, like sharpie letters, it's all of this requires effort. Yes, I mean, here's here's my thing: is like, I, I get trying to ask these things of your employees. I mean, fuck you, but like, I understand that at least <laughs> saying that it doesn't require effort. It's like, man, if it didn't require effort, why don't you do it for me? Hmm? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Why don't you yeah, fix my yeah. attitude? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean. Whether this one is real, which I didn't notice the first time I read it, that effort is on the list of things that don't require (laughs) effort, whether it's a meme or not, this sentiment is pervasive. This is is like real boss mentality that is, is definitely fucking everywhere. I don't know. It's the lights in the on the reflection look like fluorescent lights, and I don't. There's like counter space in the background. I mean, either it's in someone's kitchen with fluorescent lights, or I mean, this is real. I mean, yeah, I could totally see some fucking jet ski dealership manager yeah. rubbing his last two brain cells together trying to come up with a knockoff micro sweat pledge. You oh, know, God. so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this next one. Uh, another excellent, you know, SpongeBob, always a good, uh, good provider for meme formats where you've got the top panel. You've got this gigantic, scary monster thing. I don't actually know what episode this is from. And it's like looming over SpongeBob and it's labeled socialism will make you a slave to your job. The grocery store shelves will be empty and all the money will go to an elite few. And then the second panel is, is SpongeBob looking very not impressed. And it's just labeled an entire working class that has experienced all of this under capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just a, a really good example of capitalists describing capitalism and blaming socialism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and... So this last one was made by, uh, I believe, our friend Ethan uh, in response to the last episode that we just released of our series on the decline of American unionism. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the like it's the I hate the Antichrist. I hate the Antichrist meme format where you've got the the crazy Wojak in the corner with a shotgun. And he's but in this case yelling, I hate the, or no, it's because it's uh, with with two guys in top hats bursting through the door saying with a 401k, workers can participate in all the benefits of financialization and be part owners of the company. Uh, <laughs> and the guy's just yelling, I hate the stock market! I hate the stock yeah. market! Thank you. <laughs> this is very, Thank you very for this. true. Oh, I, my gosh. I, I gotta tell you, like, <laughs> when I found out that a big part of my benefits from this fancy new job I just got was, like, <laughs> that it would be enrolled in stocks and gambled with on my behalf, I was not excited. I was horrified. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust my yeah, boss yeah. to make my schedule. I certainly don't trust him to gamble with my future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and if you want a uh, a more detailed breakdown of why 401ks are bullshit and a scam played on the fo- the working class, uh, check out the uh, that patron series. And if you're not a patron already, you know, subscribe at workstoppage at patreon.com slash workstoppage.gov. Right, so- <laughs> We're the government now. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. I uh, well, I was actually just about to say that as we wrap up, but uh, I <laughs> oh, guess no. I'll I'll skip that part and we'll move to uh, yeah, no, jump in the disc. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> We're all doing this together. Uh, yeah, jump in the Discord. Uh, give us a review. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the podcast at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. Again, go and listen to the episode of Invent the Future that Dan was on. Super awesome history and. Like, seriously, the overtime episodes on the Patreon are some of the content I'm the most proud of that I've that we've all produced ever. Like, it's seriously, the content is so important. In fact, we even have people in the Discord who are just like, yo, this person who made this bad take, they need to listen to this goddamn overtime episode. <laughs> and I love yeah. that sentiment. That's but, also where uh, we talk about the secret labor wins that we don't tell you about on the main feed. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, as always... And as has been demonstrated by the awesome workers at Amazon, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity, solidarity everybody. One little sister runs so fast to see. Skin in the